Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 339 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is September 29th, 2014. Where has the month of September gone? We've got a big show for you this week on the podcast. USC is 2-0 in conference play, 3-1 overall. And we have a ton of questions from all of you to get to that Dan Weber and Coach Harvey Hyde will answer. We'd love to hear from you, though. Questions, send them in. Podcast at uscfootball.com. Or you can call our voicemail number 206-888-6755. Or go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page and leave a voicemail right from your computer. All right, we're going to jump in here right away, Coach. Coach Harvey Hyde joining us right now. You can hear him on the Trojan Brunch Sunday mornings. You can hear him on the, the USC pregame show on the home of the Trojans, 710 ESPN here in Los Angeles and the ESPN Radio Network. Coach, what's going on? How are you doing? Well, good morning, everyone. It's Monday, and it's uh, game week, and it's always good to come off of a win, 35-10, to 10, USC over Oregon State. I think that before they played that game, if you were to say 35-10, would you take it, Coach? I'd say, I'll take it, as long as we get the W, and that's what happened. Certainly was, Coach. And before we jump in, I want to thank our sponsor, Southern California Tickets. SCTickets.com is the website. Um, you can call them at 1-800-888-7287. If you need tickets for concerts, sporting events, you got the Angels, you got the Dodgers doing well, lots of good stuff going on in Southern California and across the country. Uh, so if you want to go check them out, sctickets.com is a place to go. They've been helping us out for years, and we thank them for that. Um, wanted to jump in, Coach, and talk about this game. we got a lot of questions to get to, and so let's just jump in, and I think you can get your thoughts on all those. Uh, ben wrote in and said, I wrote you before the season uh, regarding my concern with the number of penalties Steve Sarkeesian's teams accumulated while at the University of Washington. Now, four games into the season, USC is ranked 118th in the nation with nine penalties per game. So now I'm going to ask it again. Does Sark have a plan to solve this penalty problem? And to be fair, Ben and, and Coach, Six of the Pac-12 teams are in the bottom 20 of uh, of the country in, in penalties. And when USC went to Boston College with an ACC crew, only had three penalties. But all the, the Pac-12 crews, they've had, you know, like you said, they've averaged double digits. So uh, that Ben's question there on the penalties, Coach. Well, I tell you, you hate penalties. Uh, but, again, you don't want to take it away aggressive play. And you look to see what these penalties are. A total of 27 penalties in the game, uh, 14 by USC for 124 yards, and they do slow you down. They cost you points. They cost momentum, and you look to see which ones really hurt you the most, the illegal procedures you can't have, holding. Well, you look at the hold, you say, well, there's holding on every play, but let's try to eliminate as many as we can. And If you're going to hold, you teach them how to hold and keep it inside. Don't let your arm get around a guy's shoulder or or back where they can see that. Not that you teach holding. You obviously don't teach it, but that's where it's seen the most. 
uh, USC has had some uh, pass interference penalties, and I think that's because uh, teams test them deep uh, on their corners, and their corners have good positioning as far as on the coverages, but if you get a little bit of a shove or you don't get your hit or head around to look at the ball or whatever, I think the officials this year are really uh, super sensitive on the pass interference penalty. I mean, you see a flag going all the time, and one play they call that and one play they don't call it. But they did get several of those penalties in the game, and a lot of times when you get those penalties, it's because the receiver is a larger receiver than you are as far as the defensive back, and that's what you call a mismatch. And today, people are trying to mismatch, put their big receiver on your smaller DB and make it impossible almost for him to cover you, but you reach up and catch the ball, as Oregon State's receiver did a couple of times. But, uh, you know, you don't want penalties, and especially you don't want stupid penalties. Uh, Penalties like personal fouls, I think they had three personal fouls. I'm just guessing in the game, one was a sack of the quarterback, two were face masks. You know, you, you don't want to have those because those are automatic first down type of penalties, just like the pass interference, automatic first down. Here you are in third down situations. You make a big play. You're getting ready to get possession back of the football, and you get a first, automatic first down penalty. And you certainly don't want to have three illegal procedures in a row or an offside or whatever and put yourself in a first and 25 situation. That isn't smart either, especially when you're emphasizing your first down play. So, you know, penalties are something that uh, I used to have a lot of them, too, uh, because they are aggressive penalties, but you got to be good enough to overcome them. You know, Steve Sarkeesian last night in the conference call, Coach, talked about the penalties, and he doesn't have a problem as long as it's being consistent. He pointed to the BC game, and I think this was kind of a little shot at the Pac-12 without really taking one. He said in the Boston College game with an ACC crew, Boston College had two penalties, USC had three. That's pretty consistent. Uh, Saturday night in the Coliseum, USC had 14 and Oregon State had 13. That's pretty consistent. They're just calling it a lot tighter, obviously. Um, so he didn't have as much of an issue with that. He wanted the consistency there. But I, I, to me, it was kind of like an underhanded little shot at, hey, why is the Pac-12 doing this? The other conferences don't. You, you go out of conference for the same team in the same kind of situations. And even a game that USC lost where they're probably playing even harder, trying to do more. They only had three penalties, and last you know Saturday night they had a 14. Well, sometimes uh, your officiating crew, especially when you've been criticized a lot, uh, try to over-officiate. They have uh, in their minds, oh, if we don't call this, they're going to complain about it. If we don't do this, just like, you know, that sideline call. You'll never see that sideline call ever again uh, that they called on Sarkeesian at Stanford. You'll never see that call again, ever the entire year by the Pac-12, because I'm sure they got that cleaned up too. But uh, they over-officiate. That was an over-officiating call. And sometimes you've got to sort of pull back a little bit, be consistent with both teams, but be more consistent on what you call. Um, one other question that was kind of talked about the penalties a little bit. This is from Eric in Georgia. He says, does it seem strange that after a bye week, you d- USC didn't look very sharp? Uh, USC got a lot of penalties, which bothered me, but it also seemed that when it came to needing a yard or two, the play calling selection almost looked like a guess. Are we sometimes too worried about getting the playoff quickly in this up-tempo offense instead of getting the right play called to move the chain? Thanks. Love the show. Eric in Georgia. Good question, Eric. Uh, you hear me talk a lot about it. If you don't hear me on my other, show, my other shows, it's 
I feel it's not the number of plays you run, it's how you run them, that you execute them properly, that everybody knows who they block and what's the down-distance situation where you can get plays from the press box. The press box sees the game situation, who's being substituted better than anybody. And they also see how far you have to go. You can't really see sometimes on the on the field when your ball's on the 20-yard line just how far is it for a first down. So I, I agree with you 100%. Sometimes you hurt yourself by doing too much too hurriedly. I'd rather run less plays, execute them properly, and get after it. I, I, on the pregame show, and uh, we had Marcus Allen on, and Marcus Allen and I had a little bit of a discussion on the, the hurry-up offense and his thoughts, and he agreed with me. Uh, he's not a hurry-up offense guy. Of course, Steve Sarkeesian can run any type of offense. We both agree that he wants. He's the head football coach. But there's a great feeling when you step in the huddle and you look at everybody in the eyes and you look and say, hey, guys, we got to get this yard. We got to get it. Come on, O line. Get off the ball. Let's don't make a mistake. On two. On two. I'm ready to break. And there's a different feeling when you can look at the eyes and you know your quarterback has control of your huddle. When everybody's looking to the sideline, all it takes is one guy to piss it. And all of a sudden, you've got something wrong that's not going to work and you don't have that same emotion, I don't feel, that you do at a hurry up offense. And the uh, short yardage calls, uh, when he went for the fourth down at that time, I think the score was 21-10 at that point, uh, it was more a frustration call because he, I think he ran a Vanuku on a play up the middle. He didn't make it. He was a little bit uh, emotional and then came back. and Or he called a quarterback sneak. That's what he did. But what about a yard and a half to go and didn't make it and came back and went on fourth down. I said, wow. I said, I'd have punt that ball because if he didn't make it, the emotion of the football game would have gone back the other way at that time. They were obviously still in the game. But that would have taken the spark away that the Hail Mary passed it to Oregon State. After they threw that Hail Mary pass, Oregon State wasn't the same team. And after they lost their two defensive linemen that didn't come back and play, that's when the running game really became successful. So, uh, you know, uh, I agree with that man, Eric. I think your call is from Georgia. I want to thank you for calling in, and I'll go along with you. Uh, we got Earl in West L.A. had a couple questions. And this one actually goes along with the last one, and, and uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. He said, for much of the first half against Oregon State, the offense never seemed to get in any kind of a rhythm. The play calling from the sidelines was slow, and the play clock ran down to five seconds or less several times. The offense was slow even coming out of timeouts. This is particularly glaring when the Beavers came out of a timeout and they ran a play without staring at the sidelines or waiting for the play call. Can you tell me what was going on that made the offensive play calling seem in such disarray? Thanks. I love the show, Earl in West L.A. So it seemed a little different, Coach, in that first half where the it wasn't as up-tempo and they, they kind of went more up-tempo in the second half. Earl, I, mean, uh, Earl uh, I agree with you. I made the same type of com- comment uh, in reviewing the game. It, to me, it seemed like they were more confused. Uh, they moved people around. Uh, it's like they didn't get to play in time or they were second-guessing what the call was. It wasn't a hurry-up type of uh, of offense that, uh, you know, we normally hear getting it off in so many seconds and so many plays a game. It was more of a thought process by the calling of the play and making sure it got relayed to the field 
I think it made a more panic type of mode to the execution of the play as far as everybody making sure they understand what the play is going to be. Uh, later in the game, they, they, they did a little bit more of a hurry-up type of offense. But I really felt early in the game the offense struggled. I really felt there was never a rhythm in the football game, offensively the entire game. Uh, in the third quarter, they didn't get a first. They were the first three series. It was three and out, three and out, three and out. Defense didn't have a time, much time to rest, but the defense played a tremendous football game in holding Oregon State to 181 yards and manning 123 yards passing. They got him out of his rhythm 100%. I mean, uh, if I was an NFL scout and I'm not trying to be critical of this kid, I'd have said, well, one of the best in the nation. I'm not quite sure on this, but that's because of the pressure the front four put on Mannion. And, the, and pass pressure, uh, the best pass defense is, is pressuring a quarterback not being able to get set to throw the football. Now, he had times to throw the football, but the coverage in the second day was good enough where it forced them later to just go for their fade routes, hoping they might hit one of those big plays. And, and they got couple. And they also got a couple of uh, penalties, pass interference, which was basically a lot of their offense uh, with the penalties that that uh, SC gave them uh, was a lot of their offense. So, uh, yes, the offense, I feel, as uh, you feel, got 461 yards, but 46, 46 yards of them was on the Hail Mary. And... Uh, and then at the end of the game, and the, the final part of the game, when they rushed the ball almost every single down, uh, they were through. They were, they were there ready to go home, and I was ready to go home, too. I'll tell you, <laughs> that's one way I remember this football game. Please, let's get this game over. <laughs> yeah, it never seemed to end, Coach. That's funny. Um, he had another question, too, about Dory Jackson. He said, I've seen enough of a Dory Jackson on offense. His greatest contribution to this team is playing cornerback and returning kicks. We have an abundance of receivers to distribute the ball to, and adding him to the mix seems unnecessary. Now that we know how good he is at cornerback, what are your thoughts? I am 100% agreeable. I've been saying this since day one. And I've been saying this from day one. If you remember, and Ryan, you'll back me up on this, that Juju Smith should be playing in the secondary. I think he's a great athlete, but you win championships with defense. You make more as a defensive back in the NFL today than you do as a receiver. Uh, great corners and great safeties. Uh, man, they, they go in the first round all the time. Not the receivers don't go in the first round. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, if I was uh, the coaching staff at USC, how do you keep all those receivers happy? Uh, they're not all happy. You got Darius Rogers, he catches one ball for a touchdown. <laughs> George Farmer, I, I thought he had a great camp. Uh, don't you agree with me? For yeah. He didn't play. Yep. That I saw him. We saw Jenny Harris in this way. got in there for a couple yeah, Jenny Harris finally got yeah, some action. Yeah, Harris, Harris got it. Yeah, didn't he look good? He's been yeah, he looked good. He, but that's what he looked like over the summer in, in fall camp, and then he was supposed to start, and then we never see him. And now he comes in this game and, and makes some plays, and like, hey, that's what we were seeing. That's why we told you we, we thought he'd be good. That's exactly right. And playing, getting the ball to nine receivers are good, but I'd rather see us spread the ball around, as he said in his press conference. It was great. I love throwing the ball to the tight end. Well, that's great. Throw it to the tight end more than what you're doing. Uh, you know, this is the first game, really. The tight end's been a factor. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm a, I'm not trying to be real critical. I, I'm sorry I am. 
But you ask me questions, and I try to answer them as a coach. I'd be going into my staff meeting today or yesterday with my coaching staff. I'd sit down and say, I've watched the tape. You guys have watched the tape of the game. This is what I feel. How do you guys feel? And, you know, if they felt differently because maybe I touched on a, a button they didn't like, I'd say, well, that's too bad. My points are more strong on the head coach. Yeah. And that's way, the way it's got to be. I could see the frustration in Coach Sarkeesian at the end of the game, walking up and down the sideline when he saw the people in the Coliseum leaving. Now, I'm not saying they're leaving because of the play and the score and the time of the game as far as late at night, but this combination. Yeah. And you don't know as a coach. You don't think about the time of the game. You look around and you see nobody in the Coliseum and you think they're all displeased. So, uh, yes, I, I think that... Uh, there needs to be some corrections, as he said in his press conference. But a lot of it has to do with the coaching staff, too. Okay, let's go to Patrick. Thanks for that one, Coach. Uh, let's see. He said there's been a lot of talk about the identity of this defense. It seems like the attacking defense that we displayed was so much more effective, uh, though it was against a drop-back drop passer once again. seems like Sua Cravens made all the difference in the world, and I believe the outside linebackers have been our biggest weakness. I'm so happy that Sue has taken to this role. Do you think the defense has found their identity and they will stick with it against running quarterbacks? That's from Patrick. Well, that's a good question. You know, it's easier to go after somebody when you know where they're going to be. <laughs> and uh, Mannion's a guy that's going to be in the pocket and you're going to go after him and you can run a whole different type of scheme. You weren't concerned at all about him rolling out. You weren't concerned at all about him running quarterback draws or, or options. And you knew where he was going to be, so you went after him. So you could play a whole different style of football. But one thing I did like about the defensive line play was the aggressiveness. And they, and they, and they rushed the passer. They didn't blitz, blitz and stunt that much. These front four guys were able to go after him and cause a lot of problems uh, for Mannion. I think Williams had a great job. He did a great job. I think Woods had his best probably game of the year. Uh, I think uh, the other side, uh, uh, Simmons, had, I thought, played one of his better games. Uh, Pallone uh, got that one penalty that was unnecessary. Just wanted to let everybody know that he was in the game. And <laughs> uh, I thought Divide played a good game. Uh, see, these are the things I would say in a meeting showing it to the kids. I'm talking to you like I was at the and everybody knows you're in the game. You didn't have to get us a 15-yard person. <laughs> and, you know, because it's true. I mean, it was late. It was unnecessary. And it had a cost all of us. All of us sitting in this room, it cost us. Because you were worried about your number not being called. Get your number called or your name called by doing it the right way. So it's not a negative thing. It's just the truth. And, uh, I don't like Craven at linebacker. I'm concerned about big, good blocking tight ends when they go to double tight ends and uh, and put a big tight end on Craven, who's an, a great athlete, but he put a great tight end on him that's 265 pounds, and you run run at him. Very difficult for him to see what's going on behind it. So you got to have great linebacker play too, and great force from the outside be able to overcome that uh, against an option team such as uh, Boston College who hurt 
USC, it's perfect to have him there. He keeps his shoulders square, and he goes around the line of scrimmage. He watches it. He doesn't bite it to the inside with a great option play, and he plays the quarterback, and, and it's a lot better. You have your athletes on the field. Athlete against athlete. You cannot put an athlete in a position where he's got a disadvantage. It just doesn't work. So I think that was a good move. Uh, he had one other one, Coach. He said, thank God Sark started passing again. Why he didn't trust Kessler with more the last couple of games, I just don't understand. But it seems like they're having a lot of issues getting the plays in. It almost burned us a few times. It's very strange watching all the offensive players standing around and staring at the sidelines and waiting for the plays. I notice Kessler keeps looking back there even after the play is called. What the heck is happening, or why is this happening? Well, I, I, like I mentioned, it's it's what you call a little bit of confusion on both ends as far as the kids don't want to run a play they're not sure of that's being signaled, signaled in. They want to make sure they get it for sure. What's that again? Now, make sure it's right. And then also sometimes you get the signal out there late too, and the kids then don't have enough time to really digest it before the ball snaps or before the time expires. So this hurry-up offense can hurt you and help you. So you can tell I'm not really a fan of the hurry-up offense. If you remember years ago, the wishbone came and the veer came and everybody was going to it. Basically, it was being run by teams, a lot of teams that were trying to equalize the play. When Oregon started it, uh, I think Chip Kelly came from New Hampshire where he was running it, came to Oregon and started running it to equalize uh, their program with SC and all the other great programs, and and he had success. So what is it? What what is college football? Copycats. So they have great success. I want to run that. I want to run that. I want to run that. And not always is it the best when you have the best players. The best thing to do when you have the best players is not confuse your players, but get them ready to play, and put them in a position to prove that they're a better player than who they're playing. And uh, so, you know, I, but I want to give Coach Sarkeesian a chance because it's his team. He can run any damn thing he wants. All I can do is give you my opinion. Now, that's an excellent point. you got good players. You don't want them confused. You want using their athletic ability. And I think we saw that more in the second half. And uh, ironically, it actually seemed like it was going faster. I don't know, Coach. Maybe these guys like that high tempo. They're used to it. And when it's slowing down, it kind of – they're making them think more, but when they just have to go out there and run stuff, it just seemed like they worked a lot better when it was a, a quicker pace than when it was kind of slow and deliberate and they're taking up the whole play clock. Well, yeah, uh, the Fresno State game, they went out to prove a point, okay? You went out to prove a point that you are running a fast offense, that everybody wants to see exactly what this was that everyone was talking about. And Fresno State was a good test for them as far as getting the new offensive style in where everyone would be satisfied and they meet them like a dog and meet them up like the bulldogs they are <laughs> and uh, and everybody was more or less uh, walked away saying wow uh, so you know as you meet tougher opponents things change when the scene uh, is different, and yet other people have different type of players, and they've been able to watch you and know what you do, and they're able to break you down and scout you and say, what do they do the best? Whatever they do the best, we're going to take it away first. 
We're going to make them do something they don't want to do. That's why it's so important that you have series and schemes and well, this pass comes off of that pass. And this one, if they're taking this run away, then I run that run. And then uh, if they're doing that, I'm going to bootleg because they're over-pursuing the play to stop us on the run. All of these different things have to be in series, and you've got to have a plan that if they stop that, they can't stop this. And that's why it's so important you understand what you're trying to accomplish as an offensive unit and staff. Uh, okay, let's go to Ben. He wants to talk about some of the first down play calling. So the first half, uh, eight of the 11 first down plays were passes with mixed results. And I would say, Coach, I wouldn't say mixed results. So they were pretty anemic on first down, especially in the first half. Throwing a lot of horizontal passes, you know, losing two yards to the line scrimmage. But he said, is Sark calling the wrong pass? Is Kessler choosing the wrong target? Should Kessler roll out more or what? Running doesn't seem to work that well. Passing doesn't work that well. Is there a possible solution or not? Uh, that's Ben on the uh, first down ineptitude of this USC offense. Well, you know, when when people talk about first down and all week, that's what they were talking about, Coach, and media, first down play, first down play is important. Then all of a sudden, subconsciously, in your mind as a football coach, you're thinking about, what am I going to do on first down? i got to make it. Gotta make it. Uh, gotta make it exciting. Gotta make some yards on first down, and you sometimes over kill it. You're not doing exactly what you should be on first down. What the defense is doing and the momentum of the game and what's happening in the game. I'm not going to throw the ball every down on first down. I'm going to see exactly what I've had success with on other downs and first down, and what they're running on first down, and you know if they're blitzing on first down or second down, and what their coverages are in the secondary on first down and second down and third down, and I'm going to run what best fits their defense. I'm not going to get stuck in, uh, and I'm going to, you know, on first down pass the ball because I've been talking about it all week, and I need to get more yards on first down. I need to get enough yards on every down so I can continue to drive. So I've got to be able to focus on, you know, what's best. Maybe it draws the best on first down. Maybe it screens the best on first down. Maybe it powers the best on first down. Whatever's the best on first down, I'm not going to let them know I'm doing the same thing every down on first down or the same series every down on first down. Or every hash mark, I'm going to do this or whatever and run my plays into this short side of the field. I will if they're overshifting to the wide side of the field and putting the best players to the wide side of the field when I can take advantage of that. But, uh, yeah, sometimes you try to overcompensate for what you've been talking about for the entire week. And when it doesn't work right or properly, then we talk about it on Monday and Tuesday because we have all week to talk about what was good and what was bad, <laughs> as they do on Sunday. So, uh, you know, uh, these things, uh, if you're a coach that understands this, you're in, in the office correcting these things, not only for the players but for, for yourself as far as getting a feel of your team and how your team best associates with what you're doing and understands what you're trying to accomplish, and do you have things in your office offense to take advantage of what defenses are doing to you? Because defenses will do certain things to you to try to take it away. All right, Coach, let's see. I want to go to a voicemail question for you, if that's okay. Uh, let's play this one. Here you go. Hey, guys, it's Steve in Virginia. In my opinion... 
USC looked incredibly underprepared to play Boston College, and it's true that the Eagles had a couple extra days to prepare for the Trojans. So looking at the schedule moving forward, five of USC's remaining opponents, those five being the rest of the Pac-12 South, have extra days to prepare for USC, based on having a bye week or a Thursday or Friday night game the week before playing the Trojans. So my question is, what do you think the coaching staff can do to help overcome this lack of preparation time compared to their opponents? And secondly, has Pat Hayden or anyone else in Heritage Hall raised a gripe with the conference scheduling office since USC is at a direct disadvantage playing head-to-head against every other team within their division? Thanks a lot, guys. Love the podcast and fight on. And thank you very much for calling in from Virginia. Uh, first of all, I'll tell you, you're doing your homework, and I, and, I, and I hope they listen to this podcast, and someone's gone into the schedule to really recognize this. I, I, I didn't have even go that far ahead to uh, recognize that five of the teams do have extra days to prepare for USC than USC has to prepare for them. And uh, has the administration gone to the conference to say, what is this all about? I don't believe so. I don't even know if they recognize that. Obviously, someone must have seen that uh, along the scheduling ways. But a lot of these games are done by the commissioners uh, for TV. And for uh, a lot of reasons, USC is a popular team to promote and have on television nationally. I think that's why this week they selected them for, for the 4:30 game rather than the 7:30 game. It was on the East Coast last last week against uh, Oregon State. It was probably like two in the morning, three in the morning, as people were watching football. Hardly uh, many people saw the Trojans play this year from the East Coast, as far as that late in the, in the evening. So uh, I don't know, but I think that's an advantage. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and it shouldn't be an advantage, but that's the way football is. If you spend too much time on those type of things, you lose really your focus on what you have to accomplish. That's an administrative item that should be addressed by Pat Hayden and the administration and J.K. McKay, people who are in charge of football, and point these type of things out to the commissioner so that uh, these things don't happen. That's very nice of you and a good point that you just brought up. I'll probably use it again and steal it from you, okay? <laughs> but uh, but uh, I might as well give him credit now up front. But as far as lack of preparation time, uh, you know, you get into a routine and you have that routine. That's why I really didn't like buys when I coached. Now, I thought that USC needed a buy after the Boston College game. Really needed a buy and had to suffer through that period of time as far as uh, not being able to play to eliminate that bad taste. They needed to reevaluate every single thing, the coaches themselves, and everything that happened at Boston College. You know, when you look at Boston College, and I know people don't want to hear this, they already know this, okay, as far as what Boston's done since USC has played them. They are a great football team. I believe Oregon State would have beaten Boston College, okay? I just, just my opinion, my opinion, of course. Uh, so you got to prepare for everybody, and, and you're basically prepared for your next opponent before you even play them. And you say, how does this happen? Well, you've got graduate assistants, and you have people in the video room 
and all these other areas that break down every single game, and you have it all available to you on Sunday when you come in the office. So you start working on Sunday, and you have your program as far as what do you do Monday, what do you do Tuesday, what do you do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on. Sometimes it's difficult if you have to play on a Saturday and play on a Thursday, but they normally never schedule it that way. They give you a, a time a week or by before where you don't have to do that. But, uh, yes, they would have more time. If anything, if there's an advantage, they have more time to heal up. You have time to really, if you've lost a quarterback, like in the situation with Arizona State, if they had more time to get Kelly ready a couple of extra days for USC, wow, would that be an advantage. Because they're a different football team with, with Kelly, a quarterback, Arizona State. They're a completely different football team. So I would say that would be a huge advantage. But they played Saturday. Or no, they played Thursday. That's right. They played Thursday. So they had an advantage there. They certainly do as far as getting him ready to play this Saturday against USC. So, uh, yeah, there are advantages. And, uh, gosh, I didn't even realize that. But thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, it's crazy how that. I mean, that's a crazy stat there. So I'm going to check it out, too. I'll see what I'll ask about it this week in practice and uh, see what goes on. All right. Well, we've got a couple more to get to. Um, Terrian says, Coach Hyde. Make sure you give him a footnote on that. I definitely will. Make sure you give him a footnote on that. All the way from Virginia. Um, Terrian said, Coach Hyde, would you discuss uh, the coaching of the scout team? Is it the responsibility of certain coaches? Are the players primarily third string? Uh, Will they get to work earlier in the week? Then the rest of the team gets to learn to be ready to run the next opponent's schemes. How does that all work from Terrian? Well, uh, the way I worked it was normally most of our red shirts that we did as a scout team, they got very few turns. They went to individual drills. Uh, they would go through with the team all the individual drills, drills that we did uh, as a team. But when we go to team as far as uh, – uh, polishing and doing the different things that are necessary. They would then practice before we brought them up all the offenses and defenses and everything's on cards as far as for them to look at between plays to run the proper defense. And everything's normally scripted. So that means the offense knows what defense defense is going to be in and the defense knows. Now the defense doesn't know what play they're going to run as far as in the scout team. So, um, it's basically red shirts. Uh, today, there aren't as many red shirts, uh, so we use a lot more walk-ons in that situation. And that is why you invite so many walk-ons out to make sure you have numbers, uh, 105 players, on your roster so you can have scout teams. If you don't have walk-ons or preferred walk-ons out there, you don't have anybody to give the look to USC, especially USC doesn't have that many scholarship players anyway, so they don't really want to use a lot of scholarship players on the scout team. So they have uh, as many red shirts as they do out there. And uh, then they also use walk-ons to be the opponent every week. Uh, Randall Cunningham once told me when he was a backup quarterback, I think it was the Dallas Cowboys, he said, Coach, you know, I became a better quarterback when I was a backup quarterback than I was when I was the quarterback uh, starting and I said, what do you mean by that, Randall? And he said, because every day on the scout team, I threw against the number one defense, the number one defensive back. So I got better, better, and better. When I was 
on the starting lineup with the Eagles and different teams or started for that week. I threw against the scouts. I threw against the guys that they had on uh, on the traveling or would be unrestricted players, whatever you call them. And they weren't the same level of players I was throwing on when I was a scout team quarterback. It just makes sense. So um, this is what they normally do, and they ask them to perform. They can't pout being on a scout team. What used to really upset me is they don't give you a good look. You've got to see a good look when you're being the opponent. Otherwise, the regular team, the varsity team, or the first group, second group, does not see the looks that are necessary to play against on Saturday. All right. Uh, thanks for that one, Terrian. And uh, John in L.A. had one last one. It's a series of ones. He said, uh, thanks for the great show. I hope you wouldn't mind answering a few questions in rapid fire if necessary. So we'll do that. We'll end the show with some rapid fire ones. Coach, considering USC is only dressing 57 scholarship players, is it still cool to wear my R75 or better than your 85 T-shirt? I'll answer that. It's yes, of course. You can always wear that. Uh, next one, is there a better way for USC fans to express their disgust, frustration, astonishment, etc., and USC's scholarship limitations not being lifted after Penn State's were than sending letters, emails, tweets, or calling the NCAA offices, Coach? What do you think? Well, you know, uh, things are different. Times are different. You know how times change. But times change. Right now, the NCAA is under a lot of heat, okay? So they're going to do whatever they can do now to relieve the pressure that's on them. They're threatening, you know, going to their own conferences and leaving the NCAA. They're talking about all these other different things. So my man down there, Mark Everett, I think his name is, is trying to please as many people as he can please. (laughs) How many teams have you heard recently getting that's been – announced, investigated, uh, coming up with a final decision. I mean, there's been a lot of them happening around the country. I mean, whatever happened with that academic situation at Notre Dame? I mean, I don't know if they... Uh, and I'm not trying to point out all you Notre Dame fans. Uh, I'm not picking on a school. It's just that comes in my mind. But what's happened with that? There was discussion of having the forfeit and this and that. But this, to me, it was a one-day article. So it's it's sort of different uh, philosophy right now. I believe that if it had been the time now that FC was still on these sanctions they were on, they might relieve them of some of these things to go along with Pat Hayden and the votes that these guys need there. Now, that's just my opinion. But remember, the NCAA is it's all politics, man. Those guys are like politicians. Not that I'm saying anything negative about your senator, <laughs> but... I'm saying they got in those positions because of doing something for someone or having someone think he's a good guy, and if I vote him in there, he might help us out if we need him. So, uh, you know, that's the way it is down there in, where is it, Indianapolis? Indianapolis, I visited the building on my walk when I was down. I went to Indianapolis 500, one thing... Everybody wants to visit the Speedway and do all these other things, which I did. But I wanted to go and visit the NCAA offices. Didn't go inside because I was afraid they might recognize me. (laughs) But I walked around and just wanted to see what style of living they have. And it's not bad. They live pretty good. A beautiful brand-new building with all the waterfalls and stuff around it. 
it's not bad to go to work every day there. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, well, he had two other quick ones for you, Coach. He wants to know, is it illegal for all defensive Come players? On, well, what are we doing today? It's a quick. There's a rapid fire for these last couple. That's what we're trying to do. Oh, rapid it, guard. Yeah, there's, there's two more for him. For, it was from John L.A. He had a series of them, but you kind of went went a little longer on the NCAA one. That's okay. We like to talk about the NCAA here because it's it's a hot topic. But uh, he wants also to know, is it illegal for all defensive players to launch themselves in the air to make tackles, or is that just something that's only not allowed against USC? Well, that's that's a good question. I don't I don't believe it's just not allowed by USC. I think it's uh, well. We talked about it uh, a moment ago when we talked about the, the Pac-12 officials and officials now being more conscious to certain type of looking tackles or looking pass interference penalties. And I think it looks more violent. I think it looks like oh my god, that guy launched himself. He's a missile. The guy's a missile going after that guy, not a football player. And I think they're more conscious of that to see exactly where the missile lands and or how it started, originated. Did it miss the pile or did it go into the pile? I, I think that's what's on these officials' minds. Now, I'm not an official, but uh, looking and observing them, I think it's, that type of uh, landing and missile going across towards the opponent's players that draws their attention more than just a shoulder tackle or a regular tackle. Um, yeah, I think he was just saying that it seems to be called against USC and not against other teams. But, yeah, I get you what you're saying. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's just called against USC. You're right, okay? yeah. And then one last one. He said, do you think all of the holding by Oregon State was being ignored to help protect Sean Mannion from being seriously injured, or do I just not understand what holding is? Congratulations on the move to scout. Fight on. That's John in L.A. who had those questions. I don't, I, I don't think we all understand what holding is. Uh, holding is, is, is when the official wants to call it. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that that I don't think they they say they want to protect the player from not getting hit, but I think I think most officials are human and they start to see the look of a quarterback when he's laying on the ground and he's injured and hurt, and they say, "Wow, this guy's taking a beating, and maybe I should help protect him a little more." That's just humanity, man. But Manny didn't get hit that many times that hard. I, I mean, he's escaped it. He got sacked only twice in the whole game, and he got hit once that they penalized USC for, and that was probably the hardest hit he got. I, I just think holding is a call that can be called or not called. And I think it's part of an official that that makes that decision, unless it's blatant, man. And some of them are. I mean, really, you see guys reach around and grab it when they lose a guy, and they try to hold him so he can't break away for a touchdown. I mean, you can see that. And let me put it to you this way, too. I'm not real mad at him because he did it. If the guy is going to be going down the field in this man-to-man coverage and you lost him, the guy's going to throw a touchdown on you. I'd rather have a holding penalty. If you remember a couple of years ago in the Coliseum when Notre Dame was out here, uh, Coach Kippen used to love to throw the fade down there 
near the goal line, and they were on the one-yard line. He threw three straight fades, and Notre Dame had three straight pass interferences. Now, what kind of penalty can you give him? Nothing. Yeah. Well, how much close are you going to move the ball at the line of scrimmage? <laughs> you remember that? You remember what yeah. that happened? Yeah. So, so you've got to, again, know where you on the field, and again, when to hold and when not to hold. And if a guy's going to score a touchdown, what would you rather do, have a touchdown or get a holding penalty? So a lot of these things, uh, I'm not going to say they're taught. I think it's natural instinct. And, and sometimes when you're getting beat as a tackle pass blocking, your last effort, but you know you're getting beat, is to try to grab his jersey or tackle him or hook him. And you're not supposed to do that, but you do it because you know your quarterback's going to get smacked. I don't think intentionally that's why an official makes the call a game. Though. And I don't know if in Oregon State that game that happened. But I think a, a, court, uh, a referee, umpire, whoever, can make that call whenever he wants to. All right. Well, Coach, great stuff. I know it was a little long this segment. We've got so many questions to get to. We'll let you go. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Ryan, I love it. When we have a lot of questions, and for all of you out there, thank you for being a part of our show. Without you, we can't have a show. And uh, this week, uh, ASU comes to the Coliseum, and I'm so happy it's a 4.30 kickoff. For you in Virginia, I think his name was Eric in Virginia. I apologize if, if, if I didn't get your name right. Eric's from somewhere. But uh, <laughs> uh, maybe you don't have to uh, stay up all night to watch Trojans play. Ryan, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Coach, and everyone else. Hey, hey. Ryan, my Twitter. Oh. My Twitter account. Give at, my Twitter. At Coach Harvey Hyde, Twitter. He's at Coach Harvey Hyde. I'm at Inside Troy. We're going to be back in a minute talking with USCFootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. We have Dan Weber, uscfootball.com beat writer, sat next to me in the press box after USC's 35-10 victory over Oregon State, 2-0 in conference play. That's the positives. Wanted to get Dan's thoughts, and we have a lot of questions to get to, so we're going to have him answer all your questions. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Pretty good. Uh, a lot, you know, the thought is it's a whole lot better than uh, the previous game. So, uh, you know, however, and 2-0 in the Pac-12, I think they haven't done that since uh, 2007. So uh, they'll take it and uh, be out front in the uh, the uh, Pac-12 South, which uh, I think uh, UCLA fans now are, I was reading one thread on just every once in a while you like to go over there, and it was like, uh how can they? How can USC be leading the Pac-12 South? <laughs> UCLA's in the Pac-12 South, and somebody had to explain to them that no, they have a two and record. That's why they're leading the Pac-12 South. <laughs> but, 
Yeah, big win so, over Stanford, obviously. And, uh, you know, it'll be a big one this coming weekend with Arizona State. Maybe no Taylor Kelly. But, uh, yeah, it's, the, these these two weeks are really important for the Pac-12 South with UCLA playing Arizona State and then USC playing Arizona State. Yeah, and, uh, again, it, it brings home my point is uh, uh, you have end up with two home games this week. You know, two, both teams now are home on Saturday after not being home the last two Saturdays. And uh, you just think, and they had to juggle it around. So UCLA got the 7.30 starting time on ESPN. USC gets the 4.30 start on Fox. But uh, uh, I wish they would coordinate the schedules a little better. I know the uh, the one thought was that it's going to be like 100 this weekend, I guess, in some places in Southern California. So the uh, this might be a night where the uh, 7.30 start might be a better start than the 4.30 start. But we'll see. Uh, well, let's, uh, we got so many questions to get to, so let's just jump right in. We're going to go right to voicemail, and uh, this one is for you, Dan. Hi, guys. This is Wally from Seattle. I uh, love the show. been listening for about three or four years. Appreciate the information. Uh, in Seattle, you don't get a lot of hard-hitting USC information. Uh, I watched the game closely last night. Is it me or... Is Sue Cravens overnight the best linebacker on the team? Uh, that's the first question. Second question is, do you think they will keep him there, or do you think they'll move him back to uh, safety? Because it seems like we're loaded at that position. Thanks again. Love the show. Fight on. Well, uh, I don't think he's going to stay where he was this week, uh, next week. Uh, he's going to do more things. I think they're going to keep moving him around. I mean, I think he's going to, as they said uh, on Sark's conference call uh, Sunday night, that uh, he uh, will be more of a factor in the uh, in the nickel package, for example, that he wasn't, you know, so wasn't quite ready to be out there on the nickel package against uh, Oregon State, but that, you know, in future, and this week even, he's going to be uh, a part of that. So I think he's going to be doing a lot of things. Uh, yeah, I, I think the linebackers haven't had a really, you know, great year thus far, uh, inside or outside. It, it's been tough. I mean, poor Hayes gets his face mask, and that just seems so unlike him. And you know, got the, the ejection in, in at Stanford, and it just hasn't been a, you know, and, and whether that's uh, schemes or coaching or uh, I don't know, but you know, I think they certainly made the right call when it comes to. Uh, Kasua and trying to, you know, move him around. And, and if you got to have him up on the line of scrimmage, then I know he was probably a little resistant. Uh, I did not want to be a linebacker. You know, said, you know, don't call me a linebacker. Last week he did say, I'm a Sam linebacker. So he's, uh, and, and obviously you couldn't start out any better than, than he did. Uh, so that's probably, he wants to make plays. He wants to be near the ball. So, uh, you know, this, I think there'll be some experimentation, though, with exactly how you use him and his role. And uh, so I don't know that you know you can absolutely predict uh, where he's going to be or, or how USC is going to use him. So uh, I mean, I think that's a, that's a plus. Uh, I guess the downside is you get a guy to do too many things, and uh, you you don't want him making uh, you know making a mistake on a on a play if you are going to be you know at a safety spot for example you can't you can't much afford that so um 
it'll be an interesting uh, adventure going along with uh, young guys with the kind of talent that he has or that Adore Jackson has. Uh, pretty uh, can be pretty much fun to watch. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, following up with that, Tark wrote in and he said. He said, before the season started, I mentioned Sua Cravens should move to outside linebacker. Now, I don't remember you doing this, Dan, but he says, he said, Dan scoffed and laughed at the idea. How does he feel now? Love you guys. Fight on. Tarek. Now, I don't think I ever, I, I, as soon as I saw him, the first thing I saw him, uh, when I saw Sua this summer come back, I said, how the hell, what the, what do you weigh? And he said, 231. I said, yeah. Look like a linebacker to me. And he said, oh, uh, don't, don't call me a linebacker. I'm not a linebacker. I'm a safety. I'm not a linebacker. I guess uh, much of my thinking was if you were going to play him at a linebacker, you maybe didn't want to tell him he was a linebacker. He just <laughs> really didn't want to be called a linebacker. He wanted to be a, you know, a safety. He wanted to be a back. I mean, he starts out practice catching punts. You know, he's a punt. He, he's one of the. Next guys, if uh, something happens to Nelson, you're liable to see Sua back there catching punts. So that's something you just don't see linebackers doing. There's no question. His skill set was always, uh, you know, to be be at that that outside uh, outside spot. And no, no no doubt about that. I mean, he's 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 probably if he goes on if he goes when he goes to the next level. His size is going to be really. I mean, he's like you know Zach Banner. If you get to be six nine, you know it's that too big to you know to get down. You know, get your uh, you know tail end under your center of gravity low enough to block people. Uh, Sua might be getting to that point where you almost are are too big to play safety. Uh, he's not there yet. And he's such a you know. He's, he's like uh, somebody you haven't seen any. I mean, I don't know that I can remember somebody who looks exactly like him with his athleticism uh, and his skill with the, you know, with the ball and yet his size and strength. Uh, he's, uh, he's something we haven't seen much uh, of and probably don't exactly know what, what exactly is the best thing to do with him. Um, well, speaking with the linebackers, Dan, we you know, got to see Cravens at uh, Sam Linebacker this week. Um, but there's also some questions about Quentin Powell. Two people wrote in about us. So I'll read them both for you and get your thoughts on that. Uh, David in Orange County said, is there any news on Quentin Powell? It's like people are hiding something. Is he unhappy? Why are the coaches not uh, giving a good reason he fell on the depth chart? And also, uh, why isn't he getting any weight? And uh, J.J. wrote in similar lines. He's like, keep up the good work. Why aren't you using Quentin Powell? He played more last year under Clancy Pendergast, and he played well. He looks to me to be a great athlete, and we've had some problems with the linebackers. Is he in somebody's doghouse? Do they want him to gain weight? Does anyone have any idea why he only plays on special teams since just this spring he seemed to be competing for a starting position? So a couple questions there on Quentin Powell. Uh, We have to, you know, it looked like they were getting him ready to, to get some more reps, uh, and then it doesn't seem to happen. And, you know, these games we don't get as many plays as I think they'd hope for. And so you don't have as many reps, uh, you know, to share uh, for the defense. I know they would like him to gain more weight. There's no question about it in, in the weight room. And uh, so there's some of that. 
Uh, he's more of a, uh, you know, despite his size, and he's got kind of size of a safety, uh, he's a rangy safety anyway. Uh, he's not a, he's not a big pass defender, but, uh, he's a heck of an open field tackler and, uh, you know, really can run to the football. Um, uh, we need to, uh, I know the one week I talked to him, he really wasn't happy. The next week he was happier and hopeful, more hopeful, uh, now he's trying to convince them that uh, that they need to get him on the field, you know, more than just special teams. But uh, um, yeah, I think I think we're not absolutely certain what what all is going on in the you know the meetings and and all the other things. But uh, you know they are looking, you know, they're clearly looking for some answers. And uh, uh, and I think you know one of the things if teams are only going to run whatever it was, 59 plays that 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 um, Oregon State ran, you don't have to run all that many uh, guys in there on defense. Uh, so, I mean, I think they got a little bit of a break this week, uh, you know, with, with Oregon State not able to, you know, get that many plays off, uh, 56 plays, actually. Uh, so you don't need a big rotation when uh, when Oregon State's only running 56 plays. So uh, this probably wasn't a great, you know, test as to, is uh, is he going to get on the field? For example, with Andre Walker and Zach Banner, you had you know 80 plays or so to divide up, and that got Andre out there for 28 plays, and Zach still had 50 or so. Uh, but that wasn't the need on uh, on defense this week. So, so let's we'll give it another week. I think Arizona State will give you a pretty good test of can you tackle in space? Can you you know can you run to the football? And do you have enough depth uh, for rotations? Because they're going to get, you know, I don't care who their quarterback is, they're going to they're going to run, as, you know, a lot of plays at you. And this will be, uh, this probably would be the week if you're going to see Quentin Powell. It's going to be this week. Um, one other defensive question, Dan Kevin in South Orange County says, I get the feeling that if when Josh Shaw comes back, he could be a huge catalyst for this team. Take off during the meat of the Pac-12 schedule. Do you and Dan agree with that? Just saying and asking, Kevin in South Orange County. Yeah, I think, Kevin, you're right. If and when is the uh, exactly you know, correct way to say that. If and when. And, yes, I think that would be uh, – he would be a catalyst. Uh, I think uh, not that – you know, I mean, they're the only – I guess what we decided they're the only team in the country that hasn't given up a passing touchdown yet. So, uh you know, and uh, Sark said said Sunday night that uh, the uh, you know they're the back end of the defense is playing pretty well, uh, but obviously he ain't gonna hurt you. Gives you a tackler in space, gives you a physical guy, gives you a guy who makes plays on the ball. Uh, he's kind of you know that KG veteran, physical guy who knows just how to get a, get away with enough physical stuff that isn't going to get called but really allows him to, to have some control uh, of the receivers. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with your take on Josh. And we'll see. We didn't really get much of an update <laughs> this past week, so we don't really know. Well, I mean, I, I think the Josh Shaw update is, is what we were talking about in the war room. Nobody wants to be Roger Goodell. You know, nobody wants to say, you know, oh, it doesn't look so bad. Come on back. And then you come back and then the videotape comes out. Not that there's a videotape, not that there's anything like that. 
It's just this, the worry that maybe what if there is something more? We keep hearing there's not anything more, uh, but what if there is, then what? And so that's the kind of position that administrators don't really much like to be in. But I do think the coaches would sure like to have the opportunity to, to have him back. Yeah, I think you're right there, Dan. Um, all right, let's go. Let's uh, we got to talk about the offense a little bit. There was a lot of defensive questions. Jamal, pretty straightforward. Can you guys explain just what offense we are running? Because I can't. It seems like none of the plays have a flow. Even on the touchdowns, it looks choppy. Also, I want to add that doesn't Lane Kiffin look good right now? He sure did fall up again. Hayden isn't looking real good. He's talking about Pat Hayden. His face in the press box on TV last night said it all, and he put in quotes, I have got to get out of here. That's Jamal not really happy with the direction this offense is going. Yeah, Jamal, I mean, I, I don't think Sark would totally disagree with you. I mean, their second-half offense wasn't like the first-half offense. In the second half, they went to, uh, they, you know, they, they upped the tempo. They went quicker. They went uh, more basic. They went to uh, plays that the uh, the guys really know how to run. Uh, they went to, you know, the adjustments they made were guys just working on their stride and getting their steps down and just, you know, and I talked to both Buck and, and, and Justin after the game. I said, you guys just look like you were running faster. I mean, it, it just looked like a speeded-up video in the second half. They said, yeah, we were. And, then, and the way Sark explained it Sunday night was that he said, you know, we were really calling basic stuff. And we run it out of a quicker package. And it's, uh, you know, it's stuff that they really know well. And they have their, you know, everything down. Everything, you know, they just really understand it and they feel comfortable with it. And, and I guess my only question is, why the heck don't you start out like that? You know, why <laughs> wait till the second half? Why why get yourself in situations where you have three straight, you know, uh, motion penalties? Although I have a feeling the second motion penalty was uh, Oregon State jumping into the neutral zone, but uh, and, and maybe they didn't deserve that one. But still, uh, I think there's this sense of you know we got to trick them. I mean, I just you know you almost want to jump out of the press box when they you know, third and two, and they run you know, a counter option pitch or something, you know, off of, a, you know, something they never run anyway. And they try to fool them, and, they, you know, one Oregon State guy stays at home, and there's, you know, no first down and no chance to get one. Uh, instead of just running something, you know, up in there and, and saying, you know, we're going to run it at you, we're going to run power at you, and we're going to knock you down, and we're going to get two yards, for God's sake. Uh, so are they trying to be, uh, you know, a little Lane Kiffin-esque, you know, with uh, we're going to fool you. We're going to call such a smart play that you won't believe how smart this play is. And we're going to fool everybody. Uh, there's a little bit of that, and that's <laughs> probably not the way to go. Second half was the way to go. Uh, the, uh, you like the way they, they attacked them in the second half, even if it didn't always uh, – you know, produce anything, and they got, you know, obviously they got a couple of scores in the first half that weren't exactly out of their offense, but, um, uh, you know, I think right now they're still trying to figure out what is the offense they're running or going to run, and 
you know, is it going to be a case of it changes every week based on their opponent? That's what Sartre said it was going to be. Um, and that's really hard to do, I think, when you develop this sort of spring, summer, and uh, all August, this sort of up-tempo, you know, go get them, you know, uh, and then you start changing every week to uh, game plan against a specific opponent. I think that's a really hard mesh to, to take those two things and mesh them together. And I think that's what you're seeing right now is the difficulty of doing that. And you saw it in Saturday night's game. That That's not easy to do. Sometimes you get a, uh, a result that looks like a couple of different game plans, a couple of different offenses. And that's what it really was. Uh, one of the other things we saw Saturday night, Dan, was 27 total penalties, I believe the number was. Uh, we had a question on that. He said, it's Kevin said, I'm watching this game, and the incredible amount of penalties blows my mind. It's atrocious to see these refs every week. Is this something Pat Hayden is vocal about inside the conference with Czar Scott? He's talking about Larry Scott. Uh, good thing we're at home for the, for the next week, too. Geez, that's from Kevin. Well, did bring this up with uh, Sark uh, Sunday night and said, what do you, you know, is it really possible? Half the Pac-12 right now uh, is in the bottom 25 of penalties in the country or the top 25 if you want to, you know, who's getting the most penalties. Uh, starting with USC at, at number 105 or wherever they are, they're, they're in that general range from 105 to 115, depending on how you count the penalties, whether you count them by yards or how many they get a game or, or whatever. And, and, you know, they're one of six Pac-12 schools that are in that bottom, bottom group. And it's, you know, are the Pac-12 just that undisciplined, that, you know, badly coached, or is it something else? And Sark did note, note for example, that when they played Boston College with an ACC crew, there were five total penalties in that game. And, you know, he said we had 19 by the end of the third quarter at the, in the Stanford game. We had 27, uh, you know, the games uh, before and after Boston College. You had, uh, you know, way double digits, four times, five times, six times as many penalties as you did in the Boston College game. Sark sidestepped it nicely by saying as long as they're consistent, in the game. He said, if we're going to get 14 penalties, if Oregon State gets 13, okay, you're, at least you're calling it the same way on both teams. If, uh, you know, and I think that's probably what happened at, in the Stanford game when it was like 10 to 9 penalties, but you could get a sense it was getting out of control and it was going to go the other way, which is why I did kind of applaud the move when Pat went down there. It sort of stalemated him. And they stopped calling penalties the rest of the way, pretty much. And, and that, was, that was a good thing. They were you know, at least consistent. They called everything the first three quarters and stopped calling it the last quarter. And in the uh, Boston College game, I think USC got three penalties. Boston College got two. Uh, I mean, it was an ACC crew, and they were kind of a homer crew a little bit. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't terrible. And Sark said he's willing and he'll accept it as long as it's called the same way for both teams. I, I, I guess he probably can't say what we're all thinking when we say 27 penalties is ridiculous. I mean, you know, USC is the same team that got three penalties at Boston College in a very contended game on the road. 
And so, you know, do they do something else when they're playing a Pac-12 team? I don't think so. Now, if you looked at a lot of those penalties, they were probably there. It's just, you know, I just they call them differently in different leagues. I'd probably rather they didn't call them quite the way they do. I'd rather let the players determine the game rather than the officials. But, uh, you know, uh, I, and why it's gotten that way, I, I think I don't know if we can even begin to discover, you know, what could possibly have happened that would cause the Pac-12 officials to, you know, maybe if you do have weaker Weaker guys, they are worried about the, you know, the grading, and they're worried about, you know, they don't have the confidence not to throw that flag, and you do see late flags coming in from, you know, downtown, on the, you know, in a Pac-12 game that you really don't see sometimes when you watch other conferences, uh, and I know, I mean, I covered the SEC and the Big 12 or Big 10, and I. Covered, I knew a lot of the officials and actually went to officials' meetings and all that. If I had to say one difference is those officials looked more confident. Pac-12 officials, you get a sense from their body language and just their general approach to the game that they're not as confident about what they're doing as, as the guys in the Big Ten were, as the guys in the SEC were. For example, the SEC, you knew if you got – really got bad calls, it wasn't because they were bad refs. They were screwing you. They wanted wanted Alabama to win. I mean, and they didn't care. They looked at you like, you know, you'll get the calls in basketball, Kentucky, you know. Uh, And that was – but you didn't say, oh, they're incompetent. You just said, you crook. Whereas uh, in the the Pac-12, it's kind of like, man, you just don't know what you're doing. And or this is this moment's too big for you, and you do get that sense. That, I mean, uh, the delay of game for that uh, double fumble call that they got wrong—that it was never a double fumble—was ridiculous. Uh, it was ridiculous that they missed it. It was ridiculous that they took that long to overturn it. I mean, just—it's uh, a joke, and it should have never happened. And it ends up, you know, what looks like it's going to help USC, and then it ends up, you know, hurting them. And uh, we're just badly done all the way through, and, and you just wonder how do, how do they keep missing these things? And I don't know. <laughs> no one does, Dan. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Um, all right, there was. Uh, let's. We have one other question. Well, a couple other ones, but I wanted to get to this voicemail question next. Here you go. This question is for Dan. I'm trying to figure out after listening to the. Uh, issue on uh, transferring uh, over to another school. How was it that Eddie Vanderdoes was able to not sit out a year uh, after going to Notre Dame, listening to the fact that the uh, quarterback there had become academically ineligible, and then suddenly and magically being able to transfer down to UCLA? I think his family lives up in Northern California, which certainly would be, I would assume, more than, than two, two, uh, 200 miles away. I'd uh, love to hear your answer on that one. Fight on. That's a good question. I, I remember paying attention to it when it happened, and then I stopped paying attention to it, and I absolutely, Ryan might be able to actually answer that one uh, you know, better than I could, but I, I do know that he, he got eligible, and I don't know why. Do you have any re- recollection of that one, Ryan? No, I don't. I mean, I, well, Gerard might have something on it, too, but there was like a, 
a sick grandmother kind of story, but the same thing. He's not from Southern California. You know, we, we saw Ty Isaac when he tried to go to Michigan. Um, that didn't work. They didn't grant him that. Um, they've pretty much gone to a 100-mile rule, which allowed Amir Carlisle to be eligible at Notre Dame uh, from West Lafayette, where some parents are now, to South Bend. And it allowed uh, Kyle Prater to be eligible at Northwestern. But it would have only allowed Ty Isaac, for example, to be eligible at Northwestern. And the NCAA has pretty much set that as the standard now. Now, Kyle, uh, or Eddie Vanderdust might have probably preceded them setting that 100 mile precedent. Uh, but, um, but that's a good question. We'll have to find, find that out. I do remember. You know, thinking about it and talking because we were, you know, following him because uh, he was the guy USC certainly was interested in, and um, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I could help you there, but we'll find out. Yeah, we'll try to. We maybe start our topic on the peristyle or something. We'll we'll look into that a little bit more and and see what's going on there. Um, Ron, wait, a couple more to get to quick. Uh, Ron had a question. USC has been playing. USC, excuse me, will be playing an embarrassed Arizona State team on Saturday. How does USC avoid a letdown, especially against a team that's probably not as good as we thought at the beginning of the year? That's from Ron. Well, I know this. If they work on really hard on running by tacklers in space, this might be the best team you've ever come up against to run by. That might have been watching them against UCLA, watching the Sun Devils. They're the worst tackling big time. Te- they're the worst tackling uh, ranked team I think I've ever seen. That was a defensive performance like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, they were stunningly bad. Uh, that's the kind of thing I don't know that you can get better overnight uh, if you can't tackle anybody. Uh, and, and you know, hopefully with USC, they. Uh, they take to heart what they're going to do uh, this week in terms of all the emphasis you know, that they're going to place on running by people. Uh, but uh, I, I would, if I were going to play a team that you, know, you were hoping not to get upset by and all that, you'd, you'd like to play a team that can't tackle you. Uh, and this, they've got a good, I think, a good shot here. So, and, I, and I think they've got so much to work on, this USC team. I don't think there's anything – to be, uh, you know, overconfident about after the uh, uh, after the Oregon State game. Now, that was not a, you know, a, a performance that you're going to put in the time capsule and say this is how you play football. Uh, so they've got a lot to work on. This is a young team. Hopefully they, you know, get the, you know, the kind of direction this week and, uh, you know, the kind of focus that, uh, that but I, I, I would, the, one of the least things I'd worry about is, USC, uh, you know, not being ready to play from the standpoint of thinking they're, you know, the team that beat Stanford and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I think that did catch up to them at Boston College, but I don't think so now. And I don't know that Arizona State's the kind of team that can bounce back from uh, they just don't look like they've got the personnel to play defense this year. And we got one last one from Terrian. With several players recently leaving the team and with the 25 25- per year recruitment maximum won't this make it even harder to get back up to the 85 player roster limit that's uh terry yeah you've been reading uh, uh paul d's emails i guess huh yeah i think that <laughs> might be the the uh the third step of the 
of the plan. Yeah, they wanted, you know, they were trying to destroy USC uh, for a decade if they could have. Uh, so absolutely, that was uh, that was the idea. Of course, there's going to be attrition in, in any program for all kinds of reasons, and uh, to have never been able to, uh, you know, replace any of those people is uh, is just just criminal almost. I mean, in terms of of the burdens that it places on the players that are left in the program. Yes, he had 57 originally recruited scholarship players available uh, Saturday night. I mean, that's that's 28 down. I mean, that's, you're playing with two-thirds of the roster that you're playing against, uh, and that's game after game and, you know, week after week. And uh, uh, it's just uh, absolutely wrong. And it's, uh, if there was a place that you would have liked to see some sort of challenge mounted to the NCAA, it would have been – uh, on those grounds uh, and on the damage, uh, you know, that that is done to the players left behind. And, um, you know, it just that, that, that the NCAA hasn't seen fit to readdress that issue or is now using the uh, Todd McNair case as cover. Uh, you know, the Todd McNair case shouldn't matter at all. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, what's right and fair for the, you know, the, the current players on the USC team shouldn't have anything to do, you know, with uh, with the Todd McNair case, that, that they should stand on their own and that the NCAA would actually tie the two of them together would probably damage them if there were some sort of challenge mounted against the NCAA for the way they've treated uh, the current USC players uh, in, the, in the program right now. So, you know, which, uh, yeah, I wish you could get it going that direction, but uh, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the only way that's going to get re, you know, redressed uh, there is if some of the former USC players, once they get out of the program, go back and look at ways in which they were harmed by, uh, you know, by having to, you know, play with this few uh, scholarship players, and maybe, uh, you know, on their own, much like Todd McNair did. Uh, go find a place to um, um, force the NCA to uh, uh, answer, uh, you know, for what they've done. And I think it would be very difficult for the NCA to prove that they, uh, you know, that they did their due diligence, that they had, uh, you know, had done health, uh, uh, you know, studies to show that, you know, teams could go with fewer scholarships uh, because they set it up guaranteeing that USC would get well under the 75 scholarships. They knew it wasn't just, you know, the 75 is probably uh, not really enough, but, but setting it up the penalties the way they did, and the 15 uh, scholarships uh, allowed a year for three full years, they knew what was coming. And uh, it would be great to get them in court and have to have, have to answer, you know, for what they did. And, and uh, you know, Maybe we can hope that that happens someday. We will see. Um, yeah, we'll see. They keep waiting. We keep waiting more and more on that yeah. Todd McNair case, all those emails, all that stuff. But eventually it'll come out, just not yet. So, Dan, great stuff. Lots of questions we had to get to. We'll look forward to uh, another home game against Arizona State this weekend. But thanks again for coming on the program. Uh, another hot, hot, hot home game, I think, this weekend. It'll be fun. It'll be Arizona State weather. They'll think they're still in the desert. Yeah. Although I don't know who has the advantage. USC always practices outside. I think Arizona State avoids the C 
super hot weather because they go in, that's when they, they're inside a lot. So uh, I don't know if it comes down to, you know, one of those games, who's got the advantage. I think the UCLA people felt like they had a little bit of the advantage uh, in the, uh, you know, heat the other night. So uh, so we'll see. But, but that might add another layer of, uh, uh, of intrigue to, uh, you know, the next home game. All right. Well, thanks again, Dan. Appreciate you coming on the show. And everyone else, thank you very much for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast. We'll be back again next week. We're going to try to do a special podcast, uh, maybe even on Tuesday. I know we're going to get Steve Mason from ESPN Radio to come on. But we'll, we'll stay tuned. We're trying to get a couple of guests for you and get you a, a bonus podcast this week. So thanks for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 